1: Hello and welcome to The Back Half. My name is Kate Mossman. I'm the arts editor of The New Statesman. This is our relatively new culture podcast and I have a special guest with me this week.
2: Hello, it's Helen, um, a refugee from the New States, I was say the original New States podcast, which sounds a bit pejorative, but the original and best New States and podcast. No, we're a great <laughs> and happy podcast family. It's Christmas.
1: <laughs> we are. Our culture editor Tom Getty has gone to the North Pole. He's already left. So we thought we'd have a special festive issue for you this week. And we decided on the most festive topic possible, which was serial killers. I
2: think it's a really fascinating thing to talk about because I have a lot. I have lots and lots of friends who are obsessed with serial killers or fall down rabbit holes of reading the Wikipedia pages of serial killers. But it's obviously not something that is kind of polite to talk about because it's just seen as being essentially rubbernecking so uh, one of the things i want to talk about and we'll get to this later i hope is a bit about the kind of dressing around of some of this stuff in science as a way for people to feel like actually what we're doing is getting insights about humanity rather than being like i'm reading the wikipedia page of someone who had a belt made out of nipples or whatever <laughs> but, horrible horrible thing had happened but,
1: yeah there's always been a, a lot of um, crap tv made about serial killers but there's been some fairly decent tv made about them recently and i'm wondering whether it's a bit of a zeitgeisty thing at the moment. And, and we're going to think about maybe what the reasons for that are. But last night, just to kick off, I was watching a, a terrible new programme, a CBS reality programme called Voice of a Serial Killer, which claims to uh, use lip-sync technology to allow us to look into the eyes of Dennis Nilsson. So it's basically an actor in really bad glasses, miming to the taped confession of Nilsson. Remind me what, to- so
2: Dennis Nilsson murdered, he, was a, he it was a sexually motivated murders of young men, right? He was
1: like the British Jeffrey Dahmer. So he was a gay guy uh, in his twenties I think, twenties or thirties, who used to go and pick up blokes, take them back to his flat in London and hated the idea that they would leave in the morning. So he thought, okay, my solution is I'm going to kill you and chop you up. He's famous for having actually flushed them down the toilet, so they clogged the drainage system of his flat in North London, which is how he was caught eventually. And my strange introduction to my interest in serial killers was that actually as a child, we lived very near to this house. And we used to go and look at it all the time. And the other day I was thinking, hang on a minute, we were children. That means our parents must have taken us to look at Dennis Nilsson's flat. So there must have been one day when they drove us down there and said like, And we'll tell you what happened in that house.
2: Well, I've got a personal connection to some of this material as well, which is that I come from a small town in the Midlands. And my mum, who's now retired as a teacher, anyway, I had a a boyfriend in my teens, my first uh, serious boyfriend, and we were driving um, him home. And we went past a house and my mum went, oh, that's the house where those terrible murders happened. And my then boyfriend said, yes, that was my uncle. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, (laughs) quite a thing to (laughs) learn early into a relationship that... Um, but it was a. I mean, he wasn't a serial killer, but he was a multiple murderer. In that he was lodging with a couple, and while they were away at a big bender at the pub, he he murdered all of their children um, and impaled them on the the railings outside the house. Um, both a story that I think is both horrifying and and also in its banality. Like there was there was nothing in his background. Obviously, he, uh, from what everything that I've read about it since, you couldn't have have said that. You know, they call it the homicidal triangle of. Whenever it is fire starting, bed wetting and animal abuse, you know, they're the kind of classic signs often in people who go on to commit really appalling and crimes. And a big knock
1: on the head as well if you're Fred West.
2: Yeah, and and, and childhood sexual abuse. I mean, who knows what, what, what other things are in, in, in people's backgrounds that you might not necessarily find out about. But, uh, you know, I think the reason that some, no, so many of us are attracted to reading about kind of some of this stuff is that it happens. And it kind of disturbs our peace to think that there are people who do this. And you might know somebody who's done this. You know, you might know somebody whose who's life has been affected by um, a, a, an event like this. You know, there's a big bit in Martin Amos's memoir, Experience, where he talks about the fact, I think, a cousin of his was one of Fred West's victims. She was picked mm. up at a, a bus stop. And these are, you know, in the same way that we're kind of obsessed by terrorism in a way that we're, you know, we're much more likely to die by falling down the stairs but we're obsessed with terrorism, we're obsessed with plane accidents, we're obsessed with things that are completely random and you cannot protect yourself from, but in an instant your life could kind of change in this incredible way. And I think that's part of why these things are so fascinating, because they are so spectacular Mm. and so horrible. I I
1: think too that um, it's sort of almost the naked psychology of, of the worst, the most notorious serial killers that's sort of fascinating. If you think about John Wayne Gacy, Dresses up as a clown, kills loads of children and then goes to prison and paints pictures of himself in the clown suit, which you could then buy for a while. I mean, what a bizarre thing to do. It was so sort of um, baroque in a way and so over the top. And then, uh, of course, on the Mindhunter um, series on on Netflix, Ed Kemper is the one that they sort of make a big deal of in the second season and throughout. And he really didn't make it through much to our consciousness in the UK. He was uh, the co-ed killer in the 70s. Um, but it, he killed. He just hated his mother. He just killed a load of women first, and then eventually his big tour de force was killing his mother at the end. And there was something very tragic about the, the motivating line that caused him to actually do that final murder. He comes home one night. Um, she's put him down his entire life. She's lying in bed reading a book and he goes in to chat to her and she goes, I suppose you want to stay up all night now talking and like the, the sort of the demeaning tone of that thing, and the the crazy kind of over the top murder that he then committed on the basis of that one line, it's such a kind of a, a simple psychology in a way. I think that's what really fascinates me about
2: all of this stuff. Is it is so hard to know what could possibly drive a human to do such horrible things that in a way it's like our fascination with, I guess. The Nazis and that whole machinery of bureaucracy that needed to support something so absolutely atrocious. What are all the tiny steps that people took? You know, what did you know? How do you go from being someone who's having a sandwich to somebody who's committing a a sexually motivated killing? Like to most of us, that just seems like an unbelievable psychological leap. But you mentioned John Wayne Gacy. He was interviewed in prison by. John Douglas and Robert Ressler, these are the two of the guys who were uh, instrumental in setting up the FBI's Behavioral Psychology Unit at Quantico in the 1970s, who were the kind of inspirations for the Netflix series Mindhunter. And he gave, I think it's, I think it's Robert Ressler rather than John Douglas, a picture of a clown, and it said, you know, those who want to reap the harvest need to sow the seeds. And and Ressler goes, well, what does this mean? He goes, you're a profiler, work it out. And I think there's a big thing as well, and the same thing with with the interviews, which kept with Kemper, which formed the kind of backbone, really, of, of Mindhunter. And we're allowed to spoil Mindhunter. I mean, it yeah, seems a very strange thing to, to talk about spoiling. <laughs> but Ed Kemper is this giant guy. You know, he's he was six foot eight or so in in real life kind of slow, lumbering. I think that's the kind of thing. And they've cast an actor very deliberately and there are taped confessions of him that you can, you know, and I think the actor then watched to get the the kind of, his effect, you know, is this very flat, very kind of, and and the really chilling line that he says in the series is, what is it you've got to, you've got to get that young pussy before it turns into mom, right? Mm. Um, or his mother. Just, yeah, which is just this, this absolute distillation of this incredible hatred of, of women in, uh, that you get from it. And they didn't let the actor who played Kemp and meet the other people before he did those scenes. They kept him completely really? separate.
1: So they didn't know what they were going to get when they walked into the room with him. Yeah, I, yeah, and
2: I think that's part you can... I mean, you can definitely see that in the way that this guy is... There is just something... That, so, and it's a great credit to the actor so fundamentally wrong about him. It's like a person with a piece missing. And the reason, you know, they took... They I've read both the books, so the Mind Hunter by John Douglas, and there's a, a book by Rester called Whoever Fights Monsters, which is taken from a, a Nietzsche quote from Thus Spake Zarathustra, which roughly translates as... Whoever fights monsters should see to it that he does not in the process become a monster himself. But when you look into the abyss, the abyss also looks into you. That's really the theme of Mind Hunter is can you find out and get into the mind of a serial killer? Do you lose a piece
1: of your humanity while, while you're doing that? Mm. There's also great with this strain of um, the serial killers that like to talk, like Kemper and um, Nilsson himself, actually. There's a lot of parallels between him and Kemper on the confession tapes because uh, he was also, he was actually a former policeman, and Kemper just like hanging out with policemen, you know. So they already had an interest in the idea of detection. and and deceit and how the police worked. But there's a a great sense of um, self-importance and self-consciousness. And they almost talk like pioneers, don't they? They're saying like you need to pay attention to what I'm saying because there are other people out there like me. And this kind of very grand way of talking that Nilsson has where he's like, you know, he's saying, um, oh, you know, you think that blood comes out of a dead body like it would if you stabbed someone when they're alive. No, it doesn't. It congeals. And this is what I'm telling you. I'm the scientist. I'm the one who's going to give you this information. And so in a way, it's sort of... Um, it's it, kind of pride in the work, isn't it? It's pride is, in the which work. Which is what you get from Kemper very much a mind hunter. Yeah, and that, this is this is the, the strain of serial killer that appeals most to popular culture is these very self-conscious Hannibal Lecter-ish figures. But actually, and there's an interesting piece in The New Yorker last week that said the average IQ of a serial killer in the States is 94. These are not genius, And um, what well, average IQ is about 100, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. These are not sort of supernatural geniuses at all, but there were a few of them that were very actually very pompous and verbose and just like to talk about what they were doing. Well, Ted Bundy is another example of
2: that. So I was rereading one of my favorite, very w- weird favorite book choices, which is the X-Files book of The Unexplained, which my Jane Goldman, who's now a very successful screenwriter, but it was a, book, a companion book to all of the X-Files. And occasionally the X-Files would do serial killers. And, and, and it was one of the very rare times they did stuff that wasn't supernatural. But she writes in there about and, and had interviewed Robert Ressler for it. And one of the agents who was assigned to do the kind of debrief of Ted Bundy after he was caught for his multiple killings, killings of women basically fell in love with Bundy like he was a very charismatic Mm. guy Mm. went to the execution and like put his hand on the glass as they were about to take him away and execute him and and then was and then said you know um, Ressa says he would talk about my friend Ted after that yeah yeah. um so the ones that I think come through in in popular culture are the ones who are have a kind of yeah this kind of charisma all of their own which is a very, which is it has led to a kind of gross distortion about our idea about what most serial killers are like and how much you can learn about them, right? Mm. Um, and you know
1: what, how much there is there to be learned that is 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 actually interesting or reflective. It reminds me of the the guy who put away Jeffrey Dahmer, who developed a very close relationship with him towards the end, and actually lent Dahmer the clothes that he's wearing in the pictures of his trial. So that stripy shirt that he was famously pictured in belonged to the cop who put him away, and then there was this sort of terrible tragic parallel that. Dharma goes to prison and the cop meanwhile loses his family he ends up losing his job and his house and he's kind of sitting alone in a rented room with just one phone in the floor and he's thinking what now like I've worked to actually build up a relationship with this guy get this confession put him into prison and his life was kind of Completely, sort of, just flopped after that. So it's it's obviously it makes it into you know all these old kind of classic late '90s films like Seven and the Bone Collector and all that kind of thing. This idea that we're not so different, you and I. That's one of the big cliches of the the criminal mind versus the policeman, isn't it?
2: Yeah, and 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 I think the sort of um, the way that those films often work is almost a kind of perverse in, an, an inversion of the the seduction narrative, right? In the, you definitely see that in the film. Of, and actually made much more explicit than in the in Hannibal the book. So the film was Silence of the Lambs, and then the book of Hannibal actually finally ends up with Clarice Starling and Hannibal Lecter getting it on <laughs> yes, after I having watched him eating Hannibal someone's carries her out brain in her ball gown. Yeah, exactly. After from the, through the vicious cannibal, vicious like human flesh eating pigs, because he feels no fear. The pigs don't attack him because he's a psychopath, right? Um, and I think that's one of the things that's, that's that again. It's 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 about how you try and you know the the thread that runs through Mind Hunter is what do you have to do to yourself in order to make a connection with, with appalling people? And the kind of climactic end of that ends with the young um, FBI agent Holden Ford, played by Jonathan Groff, who looks incredibly preppy at the start. Mm. He's incredible in his button-down shirt. He's Mister Americana, you know, clean-cut, saying to somebody who is suspected of a, a rape and murder, "You have to get to that young pussy before it turns into mom." Am I right? And the guy's like, yeah, you're so right. And his partner looks at him because that's exactly the thing. Whoever fights monsters must see to it he does not become
1: a monster himself. That's one of the most effective things about Mindhunter isn't it? The slow kind of decline of his morals in a way and his morality in fact he's using their, their, their ways of talking in prison to get, get then get the next confession and it's, and it's sort of impacting on the way he's talking to his girlfriend when he gets home. I mean it's a very misogynistic show and in some ways it can fall back on the fact that oh things were like that then and of course 70% of serial killer victims were women as well so it does kind of give you this nasty insight into, in some ways, the maleness of that FBI culture.
2: I mean, there are a handful of female um, serial killers. Eileen Warnos being one of the most prominent examples, played by Charlize Theron in the film Monster, which she won an Oscar. Basically, she made herself not look like Charlize Theron, um, but she was um, a sex worker, prostitute, whichever one you want to say, who was was killing clients essentially. Which to me is more of a sort of survival killing than um, you know than somebody who is overtly picking out victims themselves. So I'm not sure there are that many predatory female sexual killer, um, sexually motivated killers in the same way you get with men. You know, there's always a big argument about Myra Hindley and Rose West and how much were they complicit. And the drama, I think, appropriate adult, which is all about the West killings, makes a plot point out of the fact that people initially assumed, oh, God, you know, poor old Rose West, she must have not known that her husband was doing these terrible things, but actually was
1: completely
2: complicit yeah. in everything. Very so, bizarre
1: person, I think, Rose West.
2: Was- yeah. And it is still seen very much as a, um, as a kind of male preserve, really. And I think presumably because so much of it is, is sexually motivated. The typology that Douglas and Resler came up with was this idea of disorganized versus organized killers. And we always end up dwelling on the organized ones because they're the ones who have interesting things to say about themselves, really, but however gross and perverted they might be. But um, in Mindhunter, they do go and interview somebody who is what they call a disorganised killer and he's got no self-reflection on his crimes. He can't really tell you why he did it. He's not, he's not there able to offer any kind of insights at all. And therefore, those people are just a kind of, a in, in character-building terms for drama, just a, a dead end. Yes, that's true. Is that the one that throws the bird
1: into the fan?
2: Oh, no, it's the previous one who's just the one who they get a soda for and the whole thing is about that. But again, it's oh, about yeah. that the relationship, about the seduction, right? It's, it's about whether or not you should go along with what people want or are they manipulating you or are you manipulating them and there's an anecdote that um either Douglas or Wrestler tells about the son of Sam killer It says to them in prison that he everything was he did was because a dog like a 6,000 year old demon that took the form of a dog talked to him and told him to do that and he said oh, I've got by the way I've got a glowing star of David on my forehead uh, mm. and Wrestler and says it was a difficult decision for me to make at that point do I go along with his delusion or, do I, or is he having me on and is he going to feed me a whole bunch of, of, of crap about stuff and I'm not going to get anything from him? So mm. he, he said, "You in the end, you had to fudge it and say, well, I can't see it, but you know, I don't have my reading glasses on. It's kind of, the light's not very good in here. So you can't, you know, and, and, there's, and Ian Leslie, who writes for us, wrote a great article about interviewing jihadis and trying to get information out of them and saying, all our models of interrogation and cop shows are wrong. You don't throw a suspect across the room. You know, you, what you do is try and psychologically wear them down. You might keep them awake for a really long time, for example. But what you do essentially is you try and say, help me understand. Like, you know, I want to know more about you. You're an important, interesting person. Help me understand what it is that I, I'm not getting about you. Yeah. And that is much more effective about making people talk. Yeah. Which is
1: exactly the, what, the the stuff that Mindhunter explores. Mm. I mean, one of the main reasons for um, lack of, of, of sort of apprehending serial killers in the past has been massive police incompetence, and this is still a huge issue, especially in America, where we all feel the serial killer comes from as a concept. Once you're over state line, that's oh, not my business anymore, and this has been a problem for for decades. But I mean, I think the most extreme example of this is the the Russian cannibal Andrei Chikatilo, who killed sort of, he was convicted for, I think, 52 child murders in the 1970s in Russia. But Russian Culture did not believe in the concept of the serial killer. This was the height of self-indulgence. This was a capitalist, it was like a decadent, thing. Western bourgeois thing. To very, do. very decadent. And then you've got so he was kind of they would rather have believed that it was different bands of gypsies, of course, who were doing these you know strangely identical child murders in the in the woods. I think around Moscow. I think it was Moscow. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got the sort of Ted Bundy character, who in some ways sums up the cool slickness of 1950s and 60s America. It's all about, you know, the cars, the driving, the white shirt, the the brill creamed hair, the kind of individual guy who's going out there and he's free and he's doing what he wants and he's making himself into a little king or something like that.
2: Well, yeah, and then that's probably a good point to talk about the other big theme that runs through um, serial killers. Like I said, I talked earlier about the idea of escalation and what happens in the case of lots of sexually motivated killers is you go from fetishizing about high heels to stealing high heels from shoe shops to stealing them off the feet from women to killing and murdering women for their high heels and then masturbating into their high heels and one of the really sad threads that runs through a lot of serial killer stories is about women not being believed ted bundy being a really interesting example he would pick up women uh, and, you know, he would look, I think particularly, I think he's the one who would look for women, particularly with ponytails because they were easier to grab and you could hold oh. people by them. And there are some women who survived that because they got an off feeling about him. But, uh, you know, given all the wider conversations that we've had this year about the way that sexual harassment so often plays on women's fear of embarrassing men and not wanting to make men feel bad, he was absolutely a killer who exploited that feeling about, you know, But this guy seems like such a nice guy. You know, what it would be so, you know, I don't mm. want to offend him by not getting into his car or, or whatever. And that's a big theme of it. And the other one is a big theme about rape not being taken seriously. Now, everything that we know now about rape suggests that there are relatively there are rapes in relationships, but stranger rapes, there are a relatively small number of people who do them, but they do a lot of them. And if they're not stopped, they work they can't they cannot stop themselves. Um, and that will escalate the British version of these books is a book called The Jigsaw Man by a, a forensic psychologist called Paul Britton, who worked on a lot of cases in the Home Office. Now, he writes in this book about a, a rapist called the Green Chain Rapist. And what had happened in 1989, the police had had information from the, the guy who was convicted of these rapes, a guy called uh, Robert Napper, who's now in Broadmoor, saying, my son has confessed to a rape. And they went, well, we haven't got any report of anything, of any of these, so this can't happen, so he was let go out actually a woman had been raped in Plumstead and it just wasn't properly recorded. And after that she cut off contact with him. He then went through a series of an escalating series of, of rapes. And now in the book, Britton writes about the fact that he was sad that they didn't catch Napper before he carried out a really violent, and grisly double murder of a woman and her her daughter. And the daughter was sexually assaulted. Her body was dismembered. The police photographer, according to the Wikipedia page, had to take two years off work after, after photographing the crime scene. It was a really grisly murder and the kind of murder that should have alerted police to the fact that this was not someone's first murder. And he talks about then about the failures, about not connecting the dots. Well, then he goes on to talk about the case of Rachel Nicole, if you remember, who was found dead with her very small child alongside her in, I'm going to say... uh, It was the early 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, in a a park. (laughs) And about the fact that the police, what happened was Paul Britton came up with a profile of the person who did this, and they thought it fitted this guy called Colin Stagg. So what they then decided to do, which is incredibly controversial, was essentially what amounted to in the end entrapment get a police officer to pose as a young naive woman saying oh i know i saw you on the coverage you know i've have, i've have all these sexual fantasies too tell me about your sexual fantasies what they about, about killing people yeah so he never confessed to the murder but the detectives thought well he's made you know de- He's he's revealed kind of details that we find really interesting and the question has always been about whether or not You know, he was entrapped into that. And the judge in the case, when it finally came to trial, absolutely said that. He said, the police had shown excessive zeal and tried to incriminate a suspect by deceptive conduct of the grossest kind. So the forensic psychologist's evidence was chucked out. The prosecution withdrew its case. He was acquitted. Anyway, at that time, there was no idea who the the killer was. Guess who the killer was? The killer was Robert Knapper, the green chain rapist. And DNA advances... Finally, finally nailed him, yeah. that down. Yeah. So, what you've got is a book by somebody talking about this incredible in depth psychological profiling that they do, and they don't know that somebody that they have psychologically profiled did another case that they were involved in. And I think that's the most useful demonstration of the real limits of this psychological profile which Mm. went way too far it went from here are some typologies this is where we can do you know people mostly attack people the same race as them you know you might have an immature killer might attack an old lady you know that's those kind of useful broad general level insights to the famous one about you know and when you arrest the suspect he'll come out in a double-breasted suit which you know then happened or you know this killer has a speech impediment and then Mm. it turned out they did and what they did was a version of what sort of psychics do which is you spam out a lot of details and then the three that you get are right you kind of go hooray look at me I'm, I'm brilliant yeah and there's a very worrying quote from um, John Douglas about you know saying if there is an element of, of a psychic component to this I won't run to it because he went to do a case and they said well you're telling us all the same thing that a psychic told us two weeks ago and that's the question about forensic psychology always is how much of it is kind of common sense, you know, Mm. like canards that you go, well, this looks like a person who does Y, so, you know, X. And how much of it is actually scientific? And that that is an ongoing conversation.
1: There's a, yeah, it's just as much use in geographical profiling. You know, the old classic scene that you get in the, the cop drama of a map on the wall with the victim stuck on it. I mean, there are algorithms in the American sort of Texan police departments, I think, that were built specifically to show how geography, the most simple thing in the world, can suggest that maybe a serial killer is operating in that area. I think the guy who set it up used the same um, software to prove who Banksy was. So he just looked at where Banksy's paintings were. And then he sort of, you know, marked out that area. And it just seems like such a basic way of of actually looking at what's important, particularly in a place like America, where you just got so so much space. And there's apparently there's something of uh, serial killer profiles where they're much less likely to kill once they get out of a home orbit. So it's more likely to happen in their own neighbourhood or in their own state, and then it kind of tends to stop. But then, of course, you've always got the itinerant ones who... And commuter killers. That was the other
2: concept that I thought was really fascinating. In fact, people who go to a specific, you know, they, like, they commute to a, a place where they kind of go and do crimes. But, you know, that's where the, fundamentally you end up with this conversation is... How many serial killers have actually been caught by forensic psychology and criminal profiling versus how many have been caught because they were stupid enough to leave the blood spattered knife with their fingerprints? Or on because it. they
1: invited the police? Or in the case they, of they, you know, Nilsson flushing people down the toilet calls the plumbers.
2: <laughs> yeah, which I think is is, is completely fascinating it's asking
1: for it. And the fact that you know, people
2: get um, one of the things that I think that is probably true that the the profilers do talk about in their in the books is that uh, what something very strange happens when someone com- commits their first murder they are terrified of being caught because they have been told by society this is the ultimate taboo you've broken it you know retribution will rain down on you and once you've killed two or three people and that hasn't happened people then at that point that's when they get they go weird in mm-hmm. terms of what the, you know the paraphilias that they exhibit um, and their behavior around killing because they believe that they're they're god at that point right they believe that they're not immortal that something kind of that they're they're, you know, lifted out of the common orbit of, of humanity. Um, and I think that's probably why we're so obsessed with serial killers in a way, because they do, like you say, become baroque. You know, most people's first killing is not one where they lay out a pentagram and put a body part <laughs> on each bit or whatever it is, right? That is the actions of somebody who's done this,
1: frankly, a number of times. When we were starting thinking about this, I was um, I had this sort of slightly romantic idea that they might be a thing of the past. You know, there is something 50s and 60s and 70s about these... Um, I'm surprised DNA hasn't done the whole business in to be honest yeah I mean but actually apparently there are, there are sort of they think 2,000 undetected serial killers in the states today
2: anyway I'm not surprised by that because there is a known problem with law enforcement about rape kits being backed up like they've just taken a lot of you know, when um, someone gets raped then police officers will ho- hopefully as sensitively as possible take swabs from their anus and vagina and mouth and any scratches and any defensive um, uh, you know skin might be under the fingernails and stuff like that and that goes into something that's called A rape kit, but there is a backlog of of processing those things, and there have been similar worries in the UK about forensic science because that was um, privatized, and then you know always the question is how much has it been protected from from cuts, you know, general policing and, and funding cuts. This is the kind of sad. Crunch to earth about about all of this stuff. is the, it talks in this high flown rhetoric, but people are often caught by very mundane means. And actually, you can do kind of as much mystic head voodoo as you want to do, <laughs> but actually, you might be better off just slightly better funding your police department.
1: <laughs> My final question for you: most interesting serial killer for you? I think Charles Manson is is really
2: interesting because, as an example of a remote killer, I mean, I think that's the kind of the the, sort of the Iago model. You know, I think. It's one step to try and understand how someone can do something as abhorrent as a serial killing themselves. It's another to understand how you wear down a group of other people's psychological defences, moral standing, in order to do that. I mean, my belief about serial killers is I would say most of them are psychopaths in the kind of classic sense of they simply do not regard other people as fully human. There's a great research into psychopath. I mean, John Rutter wrote a whole book about it. But there was an article I read recently about the fact that psychopaths are just unable to interpret um, other people's emotions. Right. So they showed him a picture of someone looking fearful. This one guy that was incarcerated for a number of killings, and he said, "I don't know what to, how to describe that, but I know that expression. It's the face. It's the expression you get on the faces of people before I stab them." Uh, this is the thing about the kind of chip missing, and it's the argument about evil versus you know things that happen in childhood, but. For, you know, lots of if you look into the backgrounds of lots of killers, there is something profoundly horrible that's happened to them in childhood, some, which may have exacerbated existing personality traits and like a you know lack of kind of moral compass or a tendency to dehumanize other people. But that's what I find really fascinating about Charles Manson is that it's a, it's a very hard to think of somebody who would have managed to assemble enough people with exactly that same psychological mm. profile. So in a sense, what can we learn from his techniques about how he? influenced other people and wore down their moral defences. That is someone I do think there is something to learn from beyond kind of rubbernecking.
1: What about you? For me, I was surprised to hear about um, Albert Fish. Do you know of him? Mm -hmm. He was also known as, they always give him several nicknames, the Grey Man, the Werewolf of Wisteria, the Brooklyn Vampire, the Moon Maniac and the Boogeyman. And this is like, I associate serial killers as we've been talking about with sort of like post fifties culture in a way post 50s economies. This guy was operating in the 20s. And he was a cannibal and he sort of killed and ate at least five children in very strange ways and cooked them. And it was all very kind of, you know, um, grim fairy tales. But just to, to see pictures of him, he looks like Albert Steptoe, It's like he's like this sort of really strange wizened old man who was operating in Manhattan in the 1920s. And it just interests me that some people just fall through the cracks of history and some people become these iconic killers like Ted Bundy. And they make movies out of them with fairly hunky actors playing them. But this thing might have been going on for a lot longer than we than we imagine. And they'll they'll probably go back centuries.
2: I think there is the first recorded serial killer. I think it was one to say is in China really long time ago who pushed people out of windows. And again, ah. sort of to come circle back to, Dad, to, to Dennis Nielsen, I think, had people back to their house and then and killed them by pushing them out of, of windows. But it's interesting who gets described as a serial killer and who doesn't because, you know, someone like Ivan the Terrible, for example, doesn't get described as a serial mm. killer because they were somebody who wielded power and just had a lot of individual people killed. Uh, or you know, Vlad the Impaler, for example. You know, it's p- people like that don't get described. It's There's something about the kind of way, and I think this is about why there's such an enduring interest in them, it's about... The it, kind of the ordinary man, and it is a man who does something that is so outside of of society, and that's what is continually fascinating to us, right? It is that kind of. It could be that guy, that creepy guy you see at the end of the, the lane, could actually have this completely, you know, st- mad, dark, secret life that somehow lives in the middle of our, you know, our cozy ideas of society. Yeah. yeah.
1: Thank you very much. That's our, our festive podcast. Treat. Happy <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> Happy Christmas. And we will return with the back half in the first week of January when Tom will be back as well. Thank you very much for listening. And um, yeah, cheers for your support. And we're playing you out as ever. Seems inappropriate now. Playing you out as ever with the fantastic Pistol Jazz and their song Godspeed.